Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnapp. Hello and Happy New Year. On today's episode, Sean and I discuss the importance of the audience in abstract art, the role of capitalism in fine art culture, and how ordinary individuals everywhere can revolutionize American art without burning down a single museum. Hey everybody, and welcome to season two of Meaning What? Thank you so much for coming back if you're coming back, and welcome if you're just joining us. Sean, you wanted to start this episode with a question, which I assume will be uh, the title of the episode, but uh, whether or not it is, what's that question? Is Rothko good? Let's begin with uh, why you asked that question, what drives you to that question, and and then also what you think the answer is to it. Right. So, like, for example, our reference picture here, number 14, is just two splotches of color on another color. And they're, like, kind of in a square, but it's kind of, you know, just there. And if I'm not really thinking about it too critically, it's just three splotches of color. And nothing more. And it doesn't seem to, like, attempt to say anything necessarily. And it doesn't feel, quote-unquote, effortful in the way we like to often conceive good, right? Like, it's not inherently impressive, necessarily. Nor does it look like it, quote-unquote, took a lot of work. But I also understand that I don't necessarily... Maybe not maybe not be the audience for this. And I don't necessarily have all the tools to understand this. So I think it just brings up an interesting conversation of like trying to understand art and should I understand it? Do I need to understand it? Mason, help me. Well, I would be much in the wrong if I didn't begin by, by pointing out that in a critique, it is always frowned upon to use um, qualitative words like good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because at, at the end of the day, whether or not Rothko is good is purely a opinion. You know? mm-hmm. But we can think about Rothko from a technical level. Um, and I think that's where it gets interesting. I am not a painter, and Sean, I don't believe you are either. Nope. Um, but have you ever worked with oil paint at all? Like, I took an oil paint class once, and it was fucking hard. <laughs> right, right. And... Um, I imagine you did a little bit of mixing of colors in there, or maybe a little color theory. Um, and so with that in mind, I think why Rothko sticks around, if we approach it purely technically, is that Rothko's sense of color is really interesting, and his colors are really striking. Um, the colors that he used, and the colors that he mixed, and the colors that he combined, um, they are full of mood and so we are looking at Rothko number 14 1960 like Sean said it is sort of roughly rectangle of orange and then a longer rectangle of blue there's a short squat long rectangle of blue on the bottom and they're on this sort of brown purple field Um, and so like if we approach it from like a color theory perspective like the red is kind of orangey and so it it is complementary to the blue and that sets up like this energy, but then also the purple background is maybe a color that you could create using these two paints. And so there's this sort of harmony in it. And the other part of it too, is that 
this whole painting would feel a lot different if we were there in person, right? Looking at it on a screen, like it has no texture, it has no size, there's no sense of scale or any of that. But all of this gets to an important point, which is that, you know, Rothko made abstract art and to appreciate it in the way that at least fine art tells us we should appreciate it, you have to know something about painting. And so I think a, a big part of where your issue comes from is is that you don't know anything about painting. And I don't either, right? <laughs> and so, like you said, are we even the audience for this painting, right? It is, it is or is Rothko having a conversation with other painters that uh, that see this and they go, oh, yeah. Do like I don't know if you know that context. Did other painters think he was good? Isn't there like that trope of almost every big artist or painter is that he's only famous and he's only well regarded after he's dead? I mean that's part of it. And Rothko certainly lived well within his means. And and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he gained much of his fame after he died. You know, like we think about Andy Warhol, who was such a celebrity. Mm-hmm. right in his actual life you know he he's one version of the artist and then we think of like the van gogh who isn't famous until after they've died and somebody says oh this is incredible and and prices it and sells it i think that rothko found success in his life you know i don't i can't speak to what other painters thought of him or even why he was really making the art that he was but he certainly was you know, running in social art circles with people who quote unquote mattered, you know, and he, he had the attention of Peggy Guggenheim and, and uh. Dominique de Menel and like all these people that like mattered if you were going to be an influential artist. Right. And that that's really what it comes down to. You got to know them. Right. It's not what you know, it's who you know. The right people like Rothko's. If the right people like Rothko's, then they will make sure everyone else likes Rothko's. Here's an interesting thing that I'm finding out, though, that I didn't know. He committed suicide. I wonder if that added to his sort of mystique. You see that a lot. Right, that mythologizing of an artist, the tortured soul, etc., etc. Right, and he was certainly, like, he was a heavy drinker and a heavy smoker, and he overdosed on barbiturates. So... I wonder how much of that sort of feeds into it. You see that a lot in fine art. If if, if the artist exits in that sort of way. And it, it, it like kind of goes back to that weird conversation of like inherent effort. I feel like in some way there's an implication there like, oh, look at them making great art despite their life. <laughs> and somehow that is quote unquote more impressive, which, ooh. Oh, I know. And there is no shortage of examples of that. Right. Francesca Whitman, who we should probably do an episode talking about, um, is is a a perfect example of that. A big part of why we find her so fascinating, I think, is because she left so tragically. But we don't think of everybody that way. So we have, like, the technical side of it, right? Right. We can talk all day about how Technically, this is a good painting. Um, mm-hmm. But what matters is that it is in some very important collections, right? Uh-huh. And Rothko's are worth a great deal of money. I wonder if that is why you know who Rothko is. Oh, definitely. Like, did you have to take an art history class in 
Nope, I've just been to muse- a, like a few museums a couple times in my life, and the list of painters and artists I know are not all that long. So <laughs> there you go. Just pop, I guess pop culture understanding. The understanding from the institutions that are set up to help you understand. And and there's a Rothko in all the big ones, I think. There's this num- number 14 is owned by SF MoMA, I think, or was recently there. How do we get to the next point? Help me out. Well, well, yeah. So this is your perfect chance for you to burn down another institution and talk about these institutions. Tell me, like, why they're terrible, because I'm sure they're terrible. <laughs> so it's really easy to talk about museums and say that they're terrible. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that is fair or even technically true. They are giant, unfeeling machines, for one thing. Um and they have terrible histories of doing terrible things, but in, in, in so in practice they are kind of terrible, but in concept they're not, right? Right. If Rothko is deemed important enough to be preserved, somebody has to preserve it, right? Um, and museums are set up from their conception as places to conserve culture, right? And that's kind of a loaded concept, right? particularly with the history of, of European conservation of culture. Right. Oh, boy. Which is, the museum is directly entangled with. And um, there there's a really great book called The Whole Picture by Alice Proctor, who is an Australian art historian. It just came out earlier this year. And she talks about sort of the history of the modern museum and, and how it got to where it is now and how really recent of an invention it actually is but the the western concept of a museum a lot of times either comes from a an institution of learning right like museums were originally the place that you went to learn painting if you were a wealthy white aristocrat or they were actual palaces like the Louvre was a palace, right? Right. Versailles. Mm-hmm. A number of museums in Britain that were originally just people's houses. And so all of those things sort of influence how the modern museum gets made, right? Because those are the people who are originally deciding what is important enough to to keep and to preserve in some way. And they were terrible. Most of them were terrible conservationists. They, they had no idea how to take care of paintings or how to take care of sculptures or how to take care of, uh, artifacts of people from, from other lands made things out of organic materials that were not meant to be in Britain, you know? Right. But they really laid the groundwork for like how a museum handles a lot of that sort of stuff. So the ways that museums work now, while not directly colonial they continue to be influenced by those colonial systems because that is the the sort of foundation of it and i think that that feeds into how we then think about what kind of art ends up there right yes because from day one the museum was a space of the wealthy elite and they decided what went into it the the difference now is that instead of it being some adventurer with some distant nobility or some estate. Um, now they are museum boards who are made up of descendants of similar bloodlines. 
but they are still the the be all end all of deciding what ends up in that museum. Right. So it's just a vicious cycle of maintaining it. And I feel like I haven't heard the conversation of um hand that back that belongs back in its motherland until recently. I might be wrong, but like the fact that we're you know needing to have that conversation only now is like ugh, but also not surprising. Yeah, that conversation's been happening for as long as Britain has been (laughs) stealing things from other places. But it it has gotten a lot more traction now in the internet age, right? Because it's a lot easier to have those conversations loudly. Mm -hmm. It's always been running in the background. I think one thing that we have to consider is that we think about culture in a very different way than we ever have, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that is the internet. Right, we think of all culture is our culture in a way. Right, everything right. is always there, and even if it's not yours, you have to respect its existence. You can't. You we don't live with the luxury of imagining that our life is the only one that is. Some people try. <laughs> Some people try. Yeah, in every direction and on all sides. Right, there's this idea that that my idea is correct. And obviously it is correct. And that ends up being the cyclical conversations that we are having almost constantly. But that has always existed in the museums of like, what right does the whichever museum it is in Britain that has all of the Athens marbles, like right. why, why do they have it? Well, the most recent argument I heard was that Greece is unstable economically. And if we give these marbles back to them, these sculptures, they could be destroyed. And so we're preserving them until Greece can take care of itself. And, you know, that's an insane argument to make, right? (laughs) They're not yours. Also, what? (laughs) Why are they in Britain in the first place? Well, it's because some guy stole them and brought them back to the British Natural History Museum or wherever. No one one questioned it. And so now Greece, member of the... European Union says, hey, we want those back. Britain says, "Mm, nah, you are in too much debt and you're too unstable economically. And if we turn these over to you, you you could have them destroyed accidentally or or otherwise, or you could you could sell them. (laughs) And I'm paraphrasing what that argument was. Right. But (laughs) that is constant. And that's always been there. I think about the Crocker here in Sacramento, which is a great museum. I've spent a lot of time in there. I did a internship there. There's some really lovely people that work there. But it has a collection of artifacts from African nations and from the Caribbean that don't make sense with the rest of the collection, and they're just sort of tossed upstairs. But the museum owns them, and they've been gifted by people. Some of them have been gifted by, from what I recall, at, at least some of them have been gifted by members of various tribes and, and, and that sort of thing. But some of them have just been gifted by collectors or the museum came into possession of them in one way or another. And why are they in Sacramento? Wouldn't you want those artifacts in a place where the people whose history that is could actually see them? Right. But what's that have to do with Rothko? It all ties back to like perception of value and like the perception of ownership. And I think the way you've talked about it has kind of helped me think of my initial question a little better. And maybe the better question is, why is Rothko 
valuable. Like, why would I have to sell my right kidney and a couple houses to own a Rothko? And how do we, how do we get to that point where paintings are worth how much? Right. It's always interesting to me because Rothko is, is dead, right? Mm -hmm. Rothko doesn't care how much his paintings are worth because it does not affect Rothko. And that is really the real terrible place of the fine art world, right? There is often the assertion that fine art is ultimately a money laundering scheme for the ultra rich, that that it is a, art is a thing that anyone can with enough money can buy and and have it be you know it holds value and it is viewed as automatically philanthropic right what nonsense right and then they hand it out to museums you know that goes out on loan and they hand it out to private galleries and 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 whatever but the artist who made it doesn't get that money Almost ever. And and a lot of times even their estate doesn't, unless they're like really organized. Mm-hmm. And the argument around an artist estate is an entirely different issue. But I'm curious as to when and why we decided that somebody who is dead, why we get to trade the things that they collected for obscene amounts of money. Right. Why does why does a Rothko go for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars when Rothko himself is not going to benefit from that? And that is an easy way to sort of sidestep into the conversation about how little living artists are paid. Right. And I I can't prove it, but I I think that that has a connection to why art is so often more valuable when the artist is dead because it makes it stands to make other people money. Oh. That's grim. <laughs> yeah, but but that is the point of fine art, right? It is status and it is wealth. Sotheby's, Sotheby's, however you pronounce their name, I think British it's thing. Yeah, that. Yeah, thing. they exist to trade art, right? Mm-hmm. And to to trade great deals of money, and that is all they exist for. And they're they are providing a service for which there is a demand. But again, most of the art that they trade is of people who will no longer you know benefit from that right and all that just to boil down to like a cosplay of status symbols and of culture man how grim (laughs) yeah who who defines culture right you know (laughs) so so why do you still take part and love this world because I'm an artist, Ugh. and it's been co-opted, right? Mm-hmm. It's a tough place to be in, because there are genuine collectors in the world, just like there are genuine gallery owners, and there are genuine um, genuine patrons of the arts, and there are genuine curators who really care about what they do. But for too many people, it's a means of making a great deal of money. I think about curators a lot, especially in this way, in that they don't, a lot of the time, and this is, it's a fairly new idea for a curator to be a person of note, right? So a a curator puts together shows for gallery, right? right? And historically, they were just the person that did that, 
right? Mm-hmm. They just organized it, and they might they might be well known within the institution or or have been recognized to have some talent for putting together an interesting show. But the idea of a curator as an art itself is a fairly new one, and I think mm-hmm. one that comes out of sort of modernism and postmodernism. This idea that the person who is organizing the art is just as, if not more important than the artist. Tastemakers. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it, it feeds into that. And so when you create a culture that is so steeped in the social media, you know, and, and Instagram matters so much, like the curator becomes the perfect sort of real physical world embodiment of that trend all too often you talk to a curator as an artist and it feels like I I was reminded of this because a friend of mine had a studio visit with someone who was a curator and and like that was the person's job title and they wrote you know they were an art critic but mostly they (laughs) curated and my friend was struck by how much it felt like this curator was just talking down to them like like they felt that they needed to explain the artist's art to the artist, right? They were the smartest person in the room because they were the only ones that have thought about art um, from a curatorial standpoint. Um, And there are a lot of artists who are curators, and there are a lot of curators who are artists, but there's this weird, very contemporary string of curators who are curators, and that is is their whole thing. And... I don't think that that can be divorced from this issue, right? Like the the tastemakers hold all of the power at the end of the day. There are always going to be artists and there are always going to be people making art. And I sincerely believe that talking about art is really important because art's very important. And our understanding of it is important because whether or not we agree with the institutions that define it or the ways that we talk about it, whether or not we think those things are important, they influence us incredibly, right? Right. It's part of the system. Yeah. Yeah. Our entire understanding of how to talk about art is because of the people that decided how we talk about art. Even when we push back against that, we're still playing within that box. And so, it, you know, art education is really important because we need to be knowledgeable about what we're consuming. But if you're an artist who's making art and and wanting to share it with other people, if you have any care of having others see that work, you need to have some understanding about how they're going to see it. And all of that is based in the institutions that sort of feed them. It's an inescapable thing. Yeah. The, the best way I can like think of it, because I don't know that world necessarily, is maybe like when I think about the music industry and the music world and how in terms of like understanding it, everyone needs to be put into a genre or like, you know, or a multi-hyphenate genre of some sort, which uh, is stupid because I think in many ways genre is dead or everything is kind of converging upon one another. So it's a little like, eh. and I guess my question is like, has in your experiences, maybe <laughs> interacting with curators and other arbiters of taste of art, have they like tried to, categorize your work within like it's a modernist movement <laughs> uh not my work uh-huh 
If you are talking to a curator, they want you to tell them where your work fits, though, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is how they're going to build their show a lot of the time. The whole idea of an elevator pitch, which is huge in professional art, is defining yourself by genre. Right. I, I make X because of Y. That exists everywhere, I think, because the easiest way for human beings to think about these sorts of things is to categorize them. And... To some extent, backwards facing, like genre plays a big role in that. If you can categorize music by the artists that were similar to it, that's super useful, right? To think about the ways that Miles Davis and John Coltrane played similar music that came from similar roots, right? Or right. that Buddy Guy and B.B. King were coming out of all of the old blues masters and, and right. how everybody influenced each other there. But all of that is history, right? Yeah. And and that's where that becomes useful. Like music is the most obvious example of it, but it happens everywhere in art is when we start trying to apply that to the immediate world. This this top 40 person, well, what, what genre are they in? Or this weird indie band, like what what do they play? Right. What box do we want to keep them in? And in 10, 15, 20, 30 years, we'll look back on it and maybe realize that all of the work that felt so different was pretty similar or coming out of the same place. But when you're right on top of it, like you can't make those calls. Um, And the same thing happens in art. Like there's a reason why no one has really settled on what the current art movement is. We have ideas about what it could be, but we're too close to it. Right. Modernism and postmodernism and surrealism and Dada, those things all exist because they are, we've moved beyond them. Yes. And we look back and we say, oh, these guys were doing similar things. And so they fall into this type of art. We'll write this movement after the fact because, yeah, yeah, that works. Right. And there are the broad strokes, right? Like there is abstract art and there is figurative (laughs) art and there is jazz and there is punk Punk rock, rock. I guess. But see, that gets complicated too because it's not – as you're right on top of it. And if you listen to contemporary jazz, like a lot of it does not sound like stuff out of the sixties, you know? So, and it shouldn't, (laughs) right. But is it, is it still the same or is it something different? Both things can be true. It can be jazz and something completely different and contemporary abstraction can be both abstraction and something else entirely. Hello again. Welcome to the break. While we continue our search for that good, good sponsorship money, I'd like to use this opportunity to let you know what you can do to help us grow. If you or someone you know has a topic you'd like to hear on the show, you can email us at meaningwhatpod at gmail.com. We're also looking for new guests for this new year, so help us get in touch with new people. For those of you who don't know, we also have a weekly newsletter. We discuss the week's episode, give some extra background or personal insight we have on the topic at hand, and share important news and updates about the podcast. It's a short read that is probably more fun than most emails you receive on Wednesday evenings, so sign up by following the link in the episode description or by going to meaningwhat.libsyn.com, that's meaningwhat.libsyn.com, and clicking the link near the top of the page. 
And finally, please take a moment to rate and leave a review of our podcast, tweet about the show, and share an episode with a friend. We rely most on word of mouth to reach new people, and it can't be stressed enough how much we'd appreciate you helping us grow. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy the rest of the episode, and we'll see you again next Thursday. So your elevator pitch, does it like conceive of it's like, how do you sell where you fit in, in these like nonsense, these nonsense movements that will all event in 50 years? How do you parse that out in terms of your art? That's a funny (laughs) thing too, right? Because it changes. It changes on who I'm talking to and why I'm talking to them. I am a photographer, a writer, and an institutional critic who focuses on conceiving of and and dismantling the reductive and harmful structures that exist in art. That's, that's the basis of it, but that doesn't serve everybody. And if I go, certain curators aren't going to want to hear that. Do I want to be in their shows if they are uncomfortable by the idea of a institutional critic who thinks that maybe what they do is not great? Well, probably not. And they don't want me in their shows either, but there's (laughs) some, wiggle room there there's value in just getting yourself in the door but even that even that changes you know and if you ask me tomorrow what my elevator pitch is it might be something just a little bit different because it's all branding right in my head like there they at least i would think like a curator at least wants the perception of challenge right and like we want art to to be forward facing and new so wouldn't um, institutional critic be delightfully spicy. For some curators, sure. But it, like, if you're curating for a for a private gallery or, or you know a for profit gallery, a commercial gallery, you will be less willing to take that risk, right? You're not going to take. You're not going to bring in work that's not going to sell or that doesn't have anything to sell. It doesn't matter if it is valuable or if it should be there or if it even matches up with other things that are in that room, like you're there to sell art. And one thing to consider is that we think about the art museum. Mm-hmm. We think about those big institutions and and any smaller local museums. We think of those places which are nonprofit institutions as the place where art lives. And it is, but almost entirely backwards facing art, right? So where does contemporary art live? Well, it lives in commercial galleries. And those commercial galleries are not going to show stuff that they don't think is going to sell or that doesn't have any inherent value to it. So if you come in there with a piece that undermines the practice of a commercial gallery, right, or says that this is bad, this commercial gallery is bad, why would a commercial gallery ever carry that? Why would they ever even think about it? It It is antithetical to their whole deal. Um, but they are the people that that move contemporary art. There's no, there are few contemporary art museums. Even the ones that we think of as contemporary art museums, as have MoMA here on the West Coast and, and MoMA in New York, most of their collections are 40, 50, 60 years old at this point. And they get new artists in, you know, with each decade, but those aren't going to be the people that you see on the main floor. Right. They're still backwards facing. So the art that's happening within the last 10 years, that's going into a commercial gallery. And and it's only ending up in that commercial gallery if you can sell it. 
I always try to like think of it from the context of the music world and understand how we're all the same, maybe slightly different, but essentially all the same. And like with the events of this summer, there's been a push to like make sure new black art is out there, especially for composition and especially institutions like um, the Met for opera and all that. So in some way, music feels like it's a, trying a little harder to be more on top of the pulse. Right. Um, but then it also <laughs> gets to that question of, is any of this actually good? Or is this just someone who who has done this before? So we're like, uh, they, they should be good because we said so. And here, think it's good. Right. And the cynical view there is that, well, of course they're doing it because art by black people sells right now and shows curated by black curators or by female curators mm-hmm. or by curators of any background that is not the traditional curator background will draw attention. Some of these shows, that's why they're happening. You know, you can make an argument that that is a net good, right? Because at the end of the day, there's still more, for example, black art being made and shown. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and more people are being exposed to it than would otherwise be exposed. But it's still operating within a system that requires it to be token or exotic. Yes. And I, I think that's something that we're not fully grappling with. And I don't, I don't know how to. Like, you see those arguments happening on Twitter all the time of people on both sides just sort of shouting about it. But... John and Jane Doe, who are just going to a museum, they don't have any sense of that. And they're going to walk into a museum and they're going to see that there's a bunch of, you know, black art in there and be exposed to it. And maybe that's a good thing for them. Right. But does that undo the rest of it? No. But two things can be true at once. And so that's where it gets really tricky, right? How do we elevate voices that need to be elevated? using the institutions that we have, because let's be honest, we're not going to rebuild them from the ground up, right? No, these institutions function in a way that we can't do that. Right. It's sort of the same thing as why we have government, right? They exist to do the things that individuals can't do on their own and shouldn't do. Right. Right. You have an institution that collects and conserves art because we, as individual humans, are terrible at that sort of thing. and. We need somebody to do it. And so we set up systems to do it. So does that mean that we need more galleries that are run by and controlled by and funded by minorities? Yes. Does that mean that we need more minorities on museum boards? Yes. But does that mean that we need to burn down all the museums that already exist or throughout their entire collections? No, but we need to like, we need to figure out how to take these things that we already have and like have useful conversations about them. Yes. And that's the, that's the point where we're at because we hear over and over again about these institutions, like not thinking very critically or not engaging genuinely with these conversations and our and then they just prove the cynicism true of they were used as a marketing tool. Right. We're just back to square zero. Right. So get the money out of them, right? 
you know, a part of it is because they have to run as a for-profit institution. So what happens if we fund the arts like other countries do? Ooh, like, what a thought. Imagine how much different this whole conversation could be if a museum didn't have to worry about driving traffic as their number one concern. If ticket sales weren't the number one thing. What kind of shows could they put on? Or who could they hire, you know, if they had the budget to just hire anybody? And what sort of things would they invest in if they didn't have to worry about their donors determining where that money went? There are just so many levels of this that sort of feed off of each other and keep the sort of cycle going. So is the answer just (laughs) get rid of money, make money no longer a concept? (laughs) Maybe ultimately, but I don't know. Capitalism is cool because I have an iPhone and my iPhone's cool, right? Yeah. Uh, But capitalists suck and they destroy all the beautiful things in the world. So how do we, how do we have a system of capitalism that, that allows us to have an iPhone, um, but doesn't make capitalism the only way that everything works? Museums are suffering from the same thing that all of our public institutions are suffering from in this country. Yes. Same thing that's happening to public schools. It's the same thing that is happening to the federal government. It's just that we don't want to fund it because we have either this idea that the free market will take care of it or this idea that if we can get ours, you know, if I can get mine, then everything else will work itself out. And taking care of it is somebody else's problem. Right. And that, that whole question of like government funding, please. And then it comes down to like this weird conceptual thing where we have to vouch for the inherent value of arts and culture. <laughs> government, please see value. Please give. So to bring it back to your original question, like, yeah. you know, Rothko continues to be good because we've decided that Rothko is good but we haven't set up a system that allows us to say, well, what else is maybe good in addition to Rothko? We don't, we don't have those, the tools in place to do that. And it would be interesting to see if we did manage to do that, if Rothko would continue to be good, you know, Mm. or is there something else that we're missing? It's trash. Burn it. (laughs) (laughs) Only Mason Hershenau's art is good. No, no, that's not true. And his friends. That's it. That continues to not be true. There's so much good art out there. There's so much good art that I don't like. That always makes me wonder. Curators can say they do it with objectivity and good taste. But what if they just fucking hate it and they, they... have the power and resources to be like, it bad, because I, I just fucking hate it. There, there's a lot of history of that exact thing happening. Oh, right? great. The entirety of art history is written by mostly men who said, this is good, you know. <laughs> and I like this guy, so he's the one I'm going to write about. The first Dadaists were women. They oh, were of course. doing it. And, you know, we talk about Man Ray, but we never talk about Lee Miller, who Man Ray obsessed over and made work about and of for his entire life. But she was the one who figured out, you know, no small number of the things that he got credit for. Oh, great. And Jackson Pollock, 
mm-hmm. another great abstract painter whose wife was probably doing drip painting before him. Oh, really? Again? Yeah. Um, All of them. Always the wife. But we don't we don't know because that's not the history that we wrote. But it, you know, probably until we do a movie biopic about it six years after the fact. I think. Well, that exists for Pollock. I think, but. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oops. <laughs> cool. Are we done? Or. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we just sort of trailed off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so from my understanding and from the education that you've given me in the last 45 minutes, it, it all comes down to systems, both good and bad and enormous. And they're so huge that we just have to function and exist and survive, try to survive in these systems in order to deem value, even after we're dead, for better or for worse. And our best hope is to just encourage the system and our robot overlords to just sometimes do the right thing, or maybe we can bully them into doing the right thing occasionally. I think maybe the most important lesson, I'm not an expert. I have two degrees. I have been making art my entire life. I have had some experience with galleries, you know, but I've shown work here and there and and I've worked with curators and I know a large group of people who are at the fringes of those sorts of things. But I think that the most important lesson is that at the end of the day, we have a real bad tendency as a culture to look toward institutions of any kind to tell us how to feel. Yes. We look to the Oscars to tell us what the good movies are and we look to... um, you know, the billboard charts to tell us what popular music is. (laughs) And we look to museums to tell us what important art is. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is just one metric. Mm -hmm. Everybody hates Nickelback, but they sold billions of albums. So someone like them, there is some inherent value to Nickelback, you know, um, at the end of the day, I think the most useful thing is you know, there's a level of acceptance of you are not going to change this on your own, right? Right. Like we were saying, you we're not going to dismantle this whole system. But what you can do is just pursue what you like. There is no guilty pleasure. And if you don't enjoy something, don't enjoy it. And if you enjoy something, enjoy it. But think really hard about why you do and reflect on where that's coming from or why you don't. And if it comes from a place of not knowing anything about it, then think, well, do I want to read up on painting and see if that changes my opinion of Rothko? And even if the answer is no, I don't want to, maybe do it anyway and see what happens, right? But like, at the end of the day, the most important thing is to, you know, just chase the things that you enjoy. And sometimes those things will show up in those institutions. And that's okay, too. It's okay to like the quote unquote good stuff. But maybe we, maybe the problem is that we have decided that whoever said Rothko was good was right. And maybe it can, that sentence can be a little bit different for everybody. So the moral of the story is don't yuck anyone's yum, but we might yuck your yum sometimes. And um, educate yourself. I don't know what any of that meant. <laughs> You're, you youth with your language. <laughs> like what you like, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure, and as long as it doesn't harm 
anyone directly or indirectly in any knowing way, you're fine. That's exactly yeah. what I said. <laughs> Whatever, man. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?